This is Dr. Laura Gouge, and you are listening to The Practice Sessions, the podcast where we combine practical advice with powerful inspiration to support you in creating the practice of your dreams. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Josh Korn. Josh is one of my friends. We were classmates together, and he's just all around one of my favorite people to talk to. So Josh has a doctorate in naturopathic medicine and a master's of science in integrative medicine research. He is currently finishing his third year of residency at NUNM, where he focuses on primary care with special interests in health at every size, cardiopulmonary medicine, and men's health. In today's episode, we talk about his clinical experience, tips for getting a residency, transitioning from student to doctor, and advice for preventing burnout. I am joined by Katie Pickworth, who is a fourth-year naturopathic medical student who is also pursuing a master's degree in integrative research. Katie is awesome. She's so passionate about primary care and is also really interested in mental health, and she hopes to be a physician scientist after graduation. I hope you enjoy the episode. So first things first, can you give us a brief sense of what's going on with your practice right now? Yes, my uh, my practice has really kind of evolved over the past year. I'm doing my third year of residency at NUNM, and so that includes working on clinic shifts as a resident, being an attending, and having a private shift as well where I'm kind of managing my own patients. And then in addition to that, I'm working as a naturopathic physician on staff at the Volunteers of America Men's Residential Center, which is a residential alcohol and drug rehab center. So I get to see patients there, work with them on kind of, um, you know, managing substance abuse and kind of coming off of those things in their recovery. It's a good variety of things. Yeah, you kind of do a little bit of everything. I do. It keeps every day interesting. Yeah. And we want to talk about all those things, but I'm also curious, what would you be doing if you weren't a doctor? Oh, that is a good question. (laughs) Um, Before I came to medical school, I was working for a chain of specialty toy stores buying toys. That was a lot of fun, and I enjoyed that. I don't know if I would still be doing that, but maybe something in that industry. I've always really appreciated play and um, educating people and and those kinds of things. So something with that. So one of the things that I really appreciate you is the sense of humor that you bring to your practice and the way that you are both clinically and academically, really, you focus on humor a lot. And one of the times in clinic that we were together, I expressed to you that I was having trouble balancing having humor with patients and being a little funny. And you kind of gave me permission to do that. And I really appreciate that. But I'm also wondering how you yourself balance both that humor piece and the seriousness that you have to have as a doctor. That's a good question. I think it's, uh, I think it's hard. And especially as a student, you know, you're really concerned with making the right choices and doing the right things and answering all the questions exactly right. And I think that's something that I've really grown into over the past couple years of practice is being able to let myself be who I am around patients. And I think that that kind of human interaction and, you know, joking with them and being a little bit light about the things that we can be, it really strengthens the doctor-patient relationship. So in those moments where we do have to be really serious, I think it makes it more impactful because they've, they've seen you not be serious the whole time. So they know, you know, when it is serious, like you're getting down to business. 
So you think that change of tone is something that comes naturally in the process of providing medicine for people? Yeah, I do. I think I think it's more that people kind of get comfortable not being serious all the time. I think it's easier to be serious when you're a student or around early in your career being a doctor. And it's easier for me to just be like, these are the facts and this is why it's serious and this is what we're doing. It's it's those moments of not being serious, though, that I think that's really what makes your patients want to come back to you and makes them feel really like heard and cared for as a person and not just as a condition. Yeah, I can see how that would really contribute to your relationship with your patients. I also am wondering, though, how that might make boundaries kind of a challenge at times. Is that something that you struggle with or that you have specific rules for yourself or anything like that? That's a good question. Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously boundaries are really important in any setting, but especially in a doctor-patient setting, it's important to be really firm and clear about your boundaries. I don't I don't think you have to go into it with, you know, these are my rules and expectations. Mm-hmm. and But I think having boundaries and making sure that you're not you're not compromising those with patients even if you do have a more you know casual kind of light relationship with them i think you can be firm but still nice still make them laugh i know for me just being in practice the more comfortable that i've been able to get with my patients and like just the more comfortable i've been able to be with practicing medicine the easier it's been to bring more humor and the easier it's been just to be a person and not feel like i had to have this facade of being perfect all the time you know i know josh and i are both still reasonably new in our careers but i think that'll just keep coming as we have more confidence in you know, what we're doing, we can just bring more of ourselves as actual people. And it's not as hard to like, have the transitions between humor and seriousness and still hold the boundaries that are necessary to have just a good doctor patient relationship. Yeah, I agree. I think when I was a student, I never would have tried to make a patient laugh. Never. Or, like, tell a joke. <laughs> never. <laughs> like, no, here are the facts. <laughs> But now, you know, I, I think also that that kind of is part of growing in in your role as a doctor is like learning how much uncertainty there is in medicine and how much you don't always have the right answer and you don't always know what to do. And sometimes people come in and all they really need is to kind of talk to somebody. They don't really need you to fix something for them. And I think just realizing that also kind of lets you relax into humor and like showing who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. So, Josh, one of the things I actually don't think I know about you and all the time I've known you is how did you end up finding naturopathic medicine? Good question. I am from North Carolina, and naturopathic medicine is not real common there uh, or anywhere in the South. So I kind of came about it, you know, roundabout looking at stuff on the Internet, and it just really spoke to me in a lot of ways. I was always really interested in herbs and plant-based medicines. Even when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time in my mom's herb garden and reading all her books, you know, it was the 90s. So like herbs and crystals and stuff were really cool in Western North Carolina. So I that's kind of where I got my start. And then I found naturopathic medicine. And it was like, oh, this is, this is a way I can use something that I'm really interested in and actually help people and do something good for the world. And yeah, so that's, that's how I found it. Yeah. Yeah. For the record, uh, herbs and crystals are still cool. They are cool because <laughs> uh, because the nineties are like pretty big again. I guess that's <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. So as a student, as a fourth year student, I'm starting to think about what life is going to be like after school and what practicing medicine is going to be like compared to being a student. I'm curious, as you've been a resident in the past three years, how 
practicing has been different than what you were expecting as a student? Yeah, I um I think in general my whole concept of naturopathic medicine is different now than what it was when I first learned about it. You know, when I learned about it, I really thought I was coming here to just learn about some herbs and and give people teas and that was it. And then in the course of going through school, I really figured out, oh, this I'm you know, I'm going to actually be a doctor and do a lot of different things for people. And I think the biggest lesson I've learned in the past couple of years of of starting to be in practice is that piece about uncertainty and being able to be okay with sitting with not knowing what's going on with with knowing that you're doing the work up you're doing your due diligence you're trying to figure things out but you're not going to be able to fix things immediately every time and I think that's a hard lesson for students to learn because in the academic setting you're not the one ever feeling that it's always the attending doctor who's really feeling that you know not knowing what the next step is I think students kind of get to see the patient on one side of things and then they leave the shift and it's just not so much their responsibility anymore yeah so I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned and something that people just kind of have to grow into I don't know if that answered your question just kind of rambling no you, you totally did I think as a student again one of the challenges for me has been that rotation through patients and shifts every 12 weeks it's both a strength of the program. And I think for those of us who are more attached to the patients, it's also a challenge. I'm wondering how you like teach people to have more investment in the case over time. Is that something you focus on at all? It's something that is kind of built into the clinic shift that I run. Um, I'm the attending once a week at the uh, drug and alcohol rehab center where I work privately as well. So I'm, I'm there kind of in two different roles, but one of my roles is being with students. It's a residential center, so you get to see patients follow up a lot more frequently. So I think people are able to kind of not only dive into the case a little bit more deeply, but also experience the doctor-patient relationship and follow up and management more than they are at some clinics where patients are only coming every three or four months. And that's, it's men's health, it's addiction recovery, it's community mental health, right? Yes, how did you find yourself working in those settings in those specialties? Well, it was not intentional. Uh, <laughs> I think with men's health, you know, it's like people are just like, oh, you're a man, so you do men's health. There's not a lot of men in naturopathic medicine. And I think it's a, you know, it's a specialty that doesn't get a lot of, uh, doesn't get a lot of press or a lot of attention. And then with, you know, working with addiction recovery and substance abuse, that's definitely not something I ever really sought out. But I was really fortunate when I was a student to work on that shift. And I worked there as a first year resident. And then as a second year resident, I took over as the attending on that shift. And I have kind of just really grown to love that population and the work that I'm able to do there. I think there's so many really cool naturopathic modalities that work for people in substance abuse recovery. You know, I, I really love herbs. There are so many herbs that are just really supportive of that transition and really helpful for people who have that history. And working in that setting in particular, you really get to see those things work because you're, you're following up with the patients so regularly and they live there and you kind of get to know them better than you, than you might. 
Okay, so I'm really curious because I don't know a lot about addiction recovery. Is there an herb or modality you end up prescribing the most? Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. I There are a couple of things that I really love using with just about every patient that comes in. One is passion flower. There's some really great research on passion flower and its mechanism of action on the GABA receptors and how that can be helpful for people who are you know, kind of recovering from addiction addiction or in alcohol or substance withdrawal. And in general, like what we know about passion flowers, it's very calming and very supportive to the nervous system. And I think people who are kind of in that active recovery transition just can really use that, you know, that plant medicine love from the from the plant. So I love that. And N-acetylcysteine is probably my number one favorite thing to use at that clinic. It's supportive of detox pathways in the liver. It's good for congestion. It's it's good for compulsive behaviors in general. There's research on it for trichotillomania, which is a, a hair picking disorder, for problem gambling, for obsessive compulsive disorder. And probably the thing I use it for most is for smoking cessation. There are a few studies on it for treatment resistant smoking cessation. So people who have not been able to quit with nicotine patches or the kind of standard things, giving them NAC has been helpful. Um, so I, I'd love to use that. Oh, how high do you have to dose it for smoking? I do uh, 1,200 twice a day. Okay. The studies have been really inconsistent with their dosages, so it's kind of hard to pick, and I kind of I try to pick the middle, the middle of the range and also what is actually doable for people, and I think twice a day is pretty much what people can do. Yeah, okay, that's really cool. So you're able to refer to a lot of studies, and I know that you're one of the only physician scientists in the naturopathic community, and I think it's great that you're evidence-based. Um, what projects research-wise are you working on right now? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm working on a couple things. I'm working on a project that's a longitudinal study of complementary medicine students. So just looking at their health uh, behaviors, basically, just it's big study to collect a lot of data so that we can see what our students who are drawn to this profession, what are they, what do they eat? How do they manage stress? How do they exercise? Even down to, you know, we're looking at biomarkers like lipids and hormones and gut microbiome analysis. So there's a lot of really cool data that's going to come out of that project that's launching sometime soon. And then I'm also working on a just kind of an internal project that's that's looking at our education and exposure around anal HPV infection and how we're teaching that and how students are exposed to that and, and what they're learning just as kind of a, a pet project for me, something that I'm interested in. So Hearing you talk about your clinical work, and then you've also got these multiple research projects going on, are you totally burnt out right now? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not burnt out because I try really hard to to keep myself doing different things, so I'm not I'm not getting bored. And I think for me, that's the key to not getting burnt out is having something that I'm excited about all the time. There, you know, there's always something to to focus on, even if. I'm not excited about like every part of my job every day. Um, and that kind of helps get me through. So it sounds like a variety of tasks is. Yes. You know, variety is the spice of life. <laughs> that's, that's herbal medicine. So when you think about what's next for you, do you see yourself uh, going into academia or more private practice or both? I think both. I think ideally for me, working in academia, working, you know, privately a couple of days a week and still doing research. I think that's that's the ultimate goal of being able to have all of those things. I think practice really informs teaching and it informs research and they all kind of just work together really nicely. And I, I like that model of being able to do different things, different days and keep life spicy. Mm-hmm. You could hashtag that. <laughs> keep life spicy. Yeah. I like that. 
Yeah. But that could be the title of the episode. <laughs> very spicy person. <laughs> so, so spicy. So one of the questions I have when I'm thinking about the the studies you're part of right now is how do you balance being evidence-based in naturopathic medicine? Because I know I've struggled some with, there isn't always a lot of data to support the modalities that we use. And as our profession moves towards evidence-based medicine, you know, dealing with studies that are flawed or, yeah, I'm just curious how you've navigated that so far. Yeah, I, I think it's a struggle for all of us you know, we all come up against that at some point. I think for me, like understanding that there is a hierarchy of evidence and while a systematic review or a meta-analysis might be, you know, the best kind of evidence that we have for certain things, that case series and, and historical evidence are still evidence. You know, using plants, for example, using herbs in a way that is historically relevant is a really important important thing like we're using them the way that traditional cultures did or how they've been used for hundreds of years there there is evidence with that i think it's also really important to have people who are in naturopathic medicine working in research and contributing to case series and contributing to research because that's how we're going to get higher quality studies and not so many of these flawed studies and in general you know like i think the modalities we use and the things we use they do have support it might not be a high level of support but for everything, but for, I mean, people didn't in generally just, you know, make up ideas out of nowhere. I think that there is some evidence for things. So it's that, I think that's the art of clinical medicine is being able to use what resources you have and figure out what the best option is for your patient. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, definitely. So from the student perspective, I think it can be really overwhelming that spectrum. So as a resident and an attending, how do you challenge your students to be evidence-based without them getting super overwhelmed by this? I think my primary consideration when I'm an attending is keeping the patient safe. And I learned that from one of my mentors, Dr. Bingham, when I was a student, you know, his, his thing was always, we've got to keep them safe. You got to keep them safe. And if we have evidence that something is going to keep someone safe, that's, that's kind of number one for me. If we have evidence that what we're giving them might benefit them and is not going to hurt them. I think that's also really important. If it's not something where safety is an issue, then I'm, you know, more apt to try things that maybe haven't been studied as extensively. And I think just really introducing students to the concept that like research is not scary and it is our friend and we do have support for a lot of the modalities that we use, especially when you think about nutrition and herbs and mind-body medicine, like there's a huge body of evidence on those things. Just introducing them to those concepts, I think, makes them feel more comfortable using that in practice. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Well, you're a third-year resident, and we're recording this in December, which means that their residency applications just opened, and it's on a lot of our minds. Uh, Do you have any tips for naturopathic students who are interested in residency? Yeah, this is the first year in three years that it has not been on my mind, so... That was very good. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, now I have a little bit more perspective on things since I'm not thinking about it for next year. I think for students who are interested in residency, if you're interested in a teaching residency, really know that you want to teach because that's a big part of it. Get a totally different layer of learning being a teacher than you got when you were a student. I think you learn and grow a lot from those residencies. If you're interested in a private side, I think the most important thing is making sure that you know what the doctor does, know what the clinic does, 
talk to the current resident, really make sure you do your homework on that. It's really easy to know what happens at the schools because you've been a student at the school, so you know how that runs. I think that a lot of people who do private residencies turn out really happy, but some of them who didn't do that much homework maybe, you know, are surprised by how their residency turned out. And it's, I think it's kind of on you to make sure that you are matching with the best site for you. I know. I feel like with the private residencies, just from seeing a lot of my friends do them, I did a teaching residency. But the private ones, to me, seemed like dating. Like you want to make sure that you really like the modalities that they're practicing, but you've got to make sure that you really, you you like jive with them professionally because you're going to be working one-on-one with them for one to two years and making sure that you really have a good working relationship, I think is so important if you want a, a private residency. Yeah, I agree. I think there, you know, it's, it's with the private residencies, there's definitely a spectrum. I have some friends who absolutely loved it because they, they did their homework and they really meshed well with the doctor they were working with. And then I know a few people who have been ready for that year to be done because it was just not what they had in mind. And that's not necessarily, it's on you to make sure that you are dating and picking the right person. Mm-hmm. So I guess this is a question for both of you, really. If you do your research, would you recommend that every student do a residency, ideally? Ideally, yes. But unfortunately, you know, that's that's just not an option. All our residencies are privately funded, and so we don't have enough spots to go around. I think that having, you know, some kind of mentorship, guidance after school is is just so, so important. And whether that's through a residency or working with someone in the same clinic or community who you can run cases by and you can learn from and you can shadow them while you're building your practice. I think some kind of additional training is absolutely necessary to be successful. I, I saw more in my first year of residency than I saw, you know, my, my whole time as a student because I was really focused on clinic and I was really able to kind of just think about clinic. And I just learned so much that year. I think it's very valuable experience. Yeah, I would recommend that everyone fly for residency since there, the reality is there aren't enough residencies to go around. I think exactly what you said, Josh, finding that mentorship if you don't get a residency. Like I am in my fourth year of practice and I still have a, a mentor that I consult with a lot just as you know, I get more into the art of practicing medicine and, and figuring out more complex cases. So I would recommend that to any student just to apply for residency and if you don't end up matching, get a mentor. Yes. Yeah. And I think also making sure that you are staying in touch with your colleagues and people who have been in practice, even if it's just one or two years longer. Um, Laura and I did residency together, and I know last year, you know, she was a she's been a huge resource for me to be able to ask questions to because even though she's only been in practice a year longer than me, she's still seen more. She's seen different things, and we have you know. A, a different kind of relationship than with a mentor, like someone who's been in practice for 10 or 20 years. So it's really easy for me to ask questions that are, you know, <laughs> someone might think are, these are dumb questions. But Oh yeah. You need, you have to find someone you can ask your dumb questions to. Yes. Like we all have those. I love that I can ask Josh my dumb questions, you know, and I find that with so many people like that we graduated with, you call them and are just like, Hey, this might be dumb, but am I missing something? Yes. Have that person you can ask your dumb yes. questions to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you have any tips for finding a mentor who's in that older, more established category? Well, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I would honestly say just don't be afraid to ask. Really don't be afraid to ask. I've been amazed at how many yeses I got when I've asked for things like that. 
even when I found my mentor, I offered to pay her and she said, no way, I'm just going to be your mentor. But uh, I was so nervous to ask her because I think we're all so afraid to hear no. But my advice would be just to find someone that's really doing what you want to do and ask if they would support you. And I think, you know, we are a, a pretty small profession in general and there are, I think people are really, really open and willing to help new grads um, mm-hmm. because people want to see the profession grow and people really want to, you know, make sure that everyone is getting supported. So I, I, I think it's maybe easier than we think, you know, you think it's going to be really hard because like Laura said, you're afraid to get no's, but then you ask and people are, are very generous with their time and expertise and yeah. So I'm really curious, Josh, because I know you're still in the NUNM system where I'm not. And I'm really curious. So if someone's decided last minute, they're like, okay, I want to get a residency. What advice would you have for just creating that, that fantastic um, application? I think working hard on the application is the biggest thing, like making sure that you're actually spending time thinking about the essays and your resume and what what you want to say in those, especially if you are sending those off to doctors that you might not know so well, that's that's how they get to know you. That's what they see. And so if you, you know, you turn in something with a bunch of errors and incomplete sentences and incomplete thoughts, that, that doesn't look good. So really spend time on those things. Make sure that you're getting good evaluations. And when you're asking people for evaluations, ask if they can uh, give you a strong evaluation. Because that's another way that, you know, people who are doing the hiring process are are evaluating you as from other people who know you. And I think just being, you know, really open to all the different possibilities of residencies, I think that's always a good thing. Sometimes things will surprise you. I definitely interviewed at several different clinics and, and considered a few, which surprised me because I thought I knew what I wanted, you know, without any doubt. And then I interviewed at a couple. And yeah, so just being open, I think, is a good thing. What yeah. did you think that you wanted the NUNM residency? Yeah, totally. I mean, this is absolutely what I wanted, but I interviewed at a couple of private sites and I think I would have been happy at those too. You know, I I really felt like I meshed well with the doctor. I like what they were doing. So I think I would have been happy doing that too. The residency process is not just the application. It's also the interview. Yes. Any tips on going through the interview process? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of the same. You got to put the work in. You got to practice. You have to know, you know, it, it shouldn't be rehearsed, but you should know what you're going to say and what cases you can draw from and and what skills you have. What are your strengths? What are your areas for development? Don't say weakness. Say areas for development. Just showing people that you really care and that you really want to do this. That the, that little bit of effort in the long run, I think, really pays off. I know someone recommended that I videotape myself and I did that answering a couple of those difficult questions like that classic, what are your weaknesses? And when I watched the video, I was shocked at how timid I sounded when I was talking, like my volume dropped when I wasn't as confident in what I was saying. And so I just corrected that, you know, and made sure that when I went into the interview and that question came up, I just said to myself, project. Like it was the littlest thing, but since someone had recommended I do that, it made such a difference in giving a stronger interview. So I would recommend that to people too. Like record yourself, actually see how you sound or ask someone to practice with you. Don't wing it. Yeah, definitely don't wing it. That's, that's a, that is great advice. I, I had some friends, I got three friends, I bought them Thai food 
and they interviewed me yes. before before my interview, like a week before, mm-hmm. and they wrote down their comments. I'm like, these questions you did great on. These questions were not so great. You need to think about something else to say. You need to, you know, change your body language, change your, yeah, your, your tone or your, your volume. And I think having, yeah, however you can do that to, to improve yourself is, it's only going to benefit you. Yeah, I agree with that. Thank you both. That's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Hopefully this gets into the ears of people applying and can be helpful in this Mm -hmm. coming cycle. Something that I've been wondering about also is that in the academic teaching residencies, we were generally pooling from students who had just graduated and that transition from student to resident. I'm wondering whether it's challenging to work with people that you were in classes with and how you might handle that, how that is for both of you. Sure. I, um, I thought that it was challenging, you know, for, for different, uh, different people for different reasons. I think that you get a lot of support from the attending physicians that you're working with. They, they know that, like, now you're a resident and now you're a doctor. And there's this, like, next level respect that they give you and support. And in general, I mean, especially at UNM, they always have your back. They are supporting you. And I think that feels really good and gives you, you know, someone's behind you. So you have the confidence. But I think, too, in general, students are pretty respectful that you are, you know, in a different role now. You, you're you a year ahead of them. You've seen a lot more patients. You've taken your board exams, your license. You've done a lot more steps. And so while it might seem like, oh, I was just a student yesterday, it's you're really quite a bit further ahead in your, you know, in your journey. Yeah, I agree with that. I know for me, I was really nervous about it, but it actually went pretty well. There were one or two interactions, maybe my first year entirely, where it felt uncomfortable, like having to give negative feedback to someone that I had started school with, who hadn't graduated for whatever reason. But for the most part, I think people were pretty respectful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think it's a you know it's a good learning exercise for you to to be in that position and have to give tough feedback maybe to someone that you. Yeah, that you started school with. And I, and I think, too, it really just goes back to having, that goes back to having humility and understanding, like, yeah, you are further ahead of them, but, like, you are not the boss doctor. You've not been doing this for 30 years. Like, you don't know everything. So just, you know, be nice to people. Like, if you're nice to people, they will be nice to you in general. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. So as you're not going to be in residency anymore, this is your third and final year, what are your goals moving forward? I'm trying to be really open to whatever comes next. I think that, you know, there are lots of opportunities out there. So I'm just trying to be open and trying to set myself up for lots of different things, different ways. So I know that you're in the process of building a social media presence yeah, for I'm a new a, Instagram. Yeah, I'm an influencer, basically. Mm-hmm. What's your Instagram? It's Corn at Instagram. You should follow me. I have like 400 followers right now, so I'm doing pretty good. I'm one of those 400. Yeah, yeah. so am I. Yeah, okay. That's <laughs> so mostly my friends. <laughs> so in developing that presence and thinking into the future and um, social media, what's been the biggest barrier or surprise that you've had so far? Oh, I think the whole thing has been a surprise, honestly. Like, you know, I have a personal Instagram account too, and I just post pictures of, you know, my vacations or like good food that I'm eating like everybody else. And that, you know, that's pretty low stake. Trying to present myself as a professional and offer 
information without offering advice is really challenging. Like that balance of, I'm not giving you advice. I'm just telling you how I practice and, you know, about this recipe or this herb or something like that. I think that's challenging. Understanding the whole like world of social media and engagement and cross-promoting and all that stuff is just crazy to me how much work goes into it. It's it's just so much work. I'm fortunate to have a good friend, Brian Esqueho in LA, who has been super helpful for me. He's really great at social media, so he's kind of been guiding me through that. Yeah, he has been totally killing it and just creating so much community for yes. naturopathic doctors on social media. I've been so impressed with what he's done so far. Yeah, he's great. Just last week, he did um, something called Brain Week. So he just got, it started with naturopathic doctors. It, it ballooned into like MDs, MDs, um, psychologists, nutritionists, physical therapists, a huge assortment of people from, I think, five or six different countries that were all posting about brain health and different topics related to the brain and mental health and those kinds of things for a week. It was just incredible. He's, I, I agree with Laura. He's really working hard to make a community for Indies on social media. And I think that's, that's, it's huge. Yeah. So other than talking to Bryant, have you had any resources to help you start creating your content online? I've done a lot of just, you know, kind of research on my own about what Instagram accounts do I like? What is the you know demographic or market that I want to go after? Like, who do I want to see this content? Mm-hmm. And while I think it's super cool that my friends are seeing it, I think my ideas about where I want my practice to go and who I really want to benefit from this information has kind of guided where I'm putting my focus. Yeah. Yeah. So what would your, your dream practice? What's your, your target market? I think right now I'm really into kind of the body positive, health at every size movement, size acceptance, just working with people who are in larger bodies, especially men who are in larger bodies. I think there's a lot of societal pressure for men to look a certain way. There's a lot of eating disorders in men that go undiagnosed. There's uh, stigma about being a larger guy. And I think there's just not a lot of resources out there for men who are struggling with that. And so I think ideally I would love to work with that population and just, you know, improve health outcomes and also just work on loving yourself. I mean, I feel like that's so important just in and of itself, like to bring more men into the doctor since statistically they're less likely to seek medical care. But especially when we're talking about health at every size, bringing that into, because I've heard about it a lot I love all the research that's out there. I feel like we should do a follow-up episode in like season two or season three around health at every size. That's such an important topic, especially in naturopathic medicine, where we're more likely to put people on restrictive diets. Mm -hmm. And there's so many like negative conversations around our bodies, but um, health at every size as it pertains to our male patients is a really interesting conversation. I agree with you that, you know, men don't see the doctor as a as frequently as women. We know that. And men definitely don't seek preventive care as frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't see men start seeing the doctor until they're in their 50s and 60s when they have problems. So if I can work with guys and like, you know, get them to eat a little bit more fiber or like walk more, or, you know, move their bodies or, or manage their stress better. And that's going to, you know, save them doctor's visits in the future. I think that's huge. Do you have strategies that you've developed for making these recommendations without it being about weight or body size? Yeah, I think learning from other practitioners who are doing it. I follow a lot of people on social media who are, you know, dietitians or other providers who are really conscious about 
how they speak to patients and clients. And so kind of trying to get into that community and learning from other people about how they do it. And really just understanding that, you know, you're, you're treating a person, you're not treating a body, however big or small it may be. It's about the person. And if you're treating knee pain, treat their knee pain. If you're treating, you know, high blood pressure, treat the blood pressure. Like there, there are ways to go about it without bringing weight into the conversation. And I think things that are healthy for people are healthy for people. Like managing your stress, moving your body, eating good food, practicing, uh, you know, compassion toward yourself and other people. I think those are, those are good recommendations for everybody to follow. I know. I feel like it's just a habit to stop talking about weight. You know, it's actually really easy Mm -hmm. just no matter what someone's size is to be able to just say, I recommend you walk and I can give you all these reasons why and just never use the word weight. Yes. Just, just that word doesn't need to be in the conversations we're having because there are so many health benefits for the things that we're recommending that we can just omit that word. And I think it's healthier for our patients and it's just, it's just practice really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's healthier for patients in general, you know, the, it's interesting the the health at every size community and the kind of eating disorder recovery community really overlap quite a bit. And even though those are seen as made by society as two totally different ends of a spectrum, the information is, is really relevant to both groups and kind of understanding that we don't have to talk about size with any of our patients, really. Like Laura said, that the health recommendations are going to improve health no matter what your size is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that it's, a unique and important perspective. I'm glad we're all on the same page because I definitely am passionate about this too. If you had a patient who came to you looking for weight loss, how would you respond? Well, I think we'd have a conversation about why, you know, what, what really is driving you to do that? What have you tried before? What has worked and or not worked? Probably not worked. And I would just focus on health and I don't know. I, I, I haven't ever had that happen, so I'm not entirely sure. I definitely would not turn anyone away, though. I think I would try to help them reframe that just conversation that they have with themselves about I that. I think that can make a really big difference in a lot of people's lives. So thank you for that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Any patient wanting weight loss would be really lucky to find you, Josh. <laughs> Very sweet, Laura. <laughs> what mistakes have you made? What would you do differently? Um, do you mean like in my life as a whole? Or... <laughs> like That's pretty, fair. That's fair. Clarity. That's clarity. Pretty broad. Um, I, I guess I mean academically in your career as a resident, whatever's yeah. comfortable for you to answer. Sure. I think I think my biggest mistakes are all the same mistake, which is expecting too much out of myself and pushing myself too hard and like not not just like chilling out a little bit. You know, I really push myself to be the best and do everything. And when I look back at my mistakes and the things that I wish I had done differently, it is all because I had a choice to make, which was either like, you can do one extra thing or you can not do one extra thing. And I was always like, I will definitely do the extra thing. And then a month later, I was like, man, I should not have done that. So I think, yeah, all my mistakes go back to that. And I'm trying really hard right now to, you know, in this, it's a period of transition for me to not, to not do that as much, to just do what I want to do, do what I like doing, show people what I like doing and let it happen and not force things and not push myself to, you know, have to make things happen. I'm just, I'm just trying really hard to let it happen and be like pretty gentle with myself about things. Well, I can't speak for Laura, but that definitely resonates with me very much. 
looking back, do you have any tips for those of us who are in that position in a younger place in our careers? I think I think that's tough because, you know, I had people telling me not to do everything and not to try to do everything. And you don't listen when, you know, you're in that position. Like, just to be honest, like, I never listen to anybody. I have people telling me not to do a thousand things. And I was like, yeah, whatever. I will do them. Just because you can, I can. And then I couldn't. So um, <laughs> I think that it comes with, I think it's something that comes with uh, experience and with, I don't know, not necessarily even age, just experience. But I would say that it also comes back to self-compassion and like being cool with yourself and like knowing that what you're doing is enough. And if it is what you really love doing and what you're really passionate about and, you know, doing well. It's not always about quantity. It can be about quality, too. Well, I know that one of the major themes in the Health at Every Size movement is just knowing that you're enough. Mm-hmm. So maybe full circle there. That's a big theme in your life right now. Yeah, totally. Like. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that's helped you the most with just staying centered, going through the first stressful years of practice? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, what what we talked about earlier, having friends that you can ask those dumb questions to and having people who are in that same, same time of their life and of their practice has been really supportive to me and being able to just vent about the frustrations and build each other up about what we're doing and learn from each other. I think that's been the biggest thing. And I think like looking back on three years of residency, the relationships that I made with people that I worked with. I think that's what really sticks with me. Like, that's what really got me through those hard moments of not knowing what I'm doing. Yeah, I agree with that. I think having that, building that community and having those Mm -hmm. close friends and just that connection is really nourishing when you're stressed out. Totally. Yeah. And also, you know, I think also I have friends who are not doctors. (laughs) I think that's also like a really huge thing that keeps me sane is that I spend time with my friends and don't talk about medicine. And even my friends who are you know, doctors, we, we don't always talk about medicine and having a moment to get away from it, I think is also, it's not just nourishing and supportive. It is absolutely vital. If you think about this all the time, you will drive yourself crazy. You will think about every single little thing that you could have done differently and you will, you will go nuts. (laughs) You got to find people who are not doctors to just be like, yeah, I was a good doctor today. And they're like, sweet, you're a good doctor. I'm like, Yes. Yeah, like, what are you watching on TV right now? Exactly. You know, like, let's talk about TV shows. Yep. Yeah, I know as a student, we can definitely kind of circle the drain together, all of us ruminating and thinking through the worst and the best and Mm -hmm. getting pretty obsessive. So I think it's good to have that reminder that life isn't medicine, I guess, theoretically. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you do outside of medicine that helps to ground you? Other than social time. Yeah, I mean, social time is a huge thing for me, you know, just spending time with my friends. But also just, you know, exploring other things that I love. I play in a band here. I like to cook a lot. I like to go to fancy restaurants because I just really love good, delicious, well-made food. I like being outside. So, you know, Portland's like the best place to be because we have a great food scene. It's great outdoors. It's like, I mean, it's a typical Portland response, you know, like food and beer and hiking, like duh, everybody does here. Yeah, we all live here for a reason. Exactly. But I think that like this place is, I mean, in general, like as a place is very supportive because there's so many options for ways to get your mind off your job or medicine. You just have to take advantage of them. All right. So just a couple of kind of random rapid fire questions. Do you have a favorite app? Like a medical app? Yeah. 
because I mean, like, of course, Instagram is my favorite app. Follow me. Um, favorite medical app. <laughs> <laughs> like, Personal app. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I really like the AHRQEPSS app, which is the, uh, it's a great app for just figuring out what screening exams are due for patients of different ages and sex and, you know, sexual activity and tobacco use. You just type all that in it tells you exactly what things need to be ordered for kind of health maintenance and preventive care. And it gives you a level of evidence. So you know what the kind of most important things are and what you can maybe wait on. I think that has been really helpful for me in the first couple of years of practicing primary care. Yeah. You have a favorite book? Doesn't have to be medical. Mm. Favorite book. That's, that's tough. I think probably my favorite non-medical book is a book called The Education of Little Tree. It's about a Cherokee boy who was raised by his grandparents. And that book is really special to me because I read it with my grandpa when I was a kid. And it was about the place where I grew up in Western North Carolina. So I just have a lot of really good memories associated with that. And I read that sometimes. My favorite medical book. I'm, I just reread Health at Every Size and like just really enjoyed that. It was a good refresher on everything about that movement that I was really drawn to. So I think, yeah, currently those are that's probably my favorite. And you have a favorite naturopathic modality? Yes, I would say herbs because I really like herbs, but I think actually my favorite naturopathic modality is just listening to people. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's what I get the most out of. That That feeds me, and it also, I think, benefits the patient the most. I have a really, really challenging... Uh, case that I'm working on and it's a person who's seen like 30 something doctors over the course of the past three years and every time he sees me he tells me that I'm the best doctor he's ever seen and I am like that is absolutely a lie because you have seen <laughs> so many like fancy specialists I don't even know what I'm doing for this guy but every time he's like well it's because you listen to me you're trying to help you really like you care and you really want to listen and I think any doctor can prescribe you an herb or a diet or meditation app. Anybody can do that. You don't have to be a naturopath. That's not really what makes us special. I think what makes us special is that human connection and like really listening to our patients and wanting to know their whole story and, you know, trying to help them as a whole person. I think that's really, that's our greatest modality, our greatest strength. I know. I really couldn't agree more. I feel like the number of times I've had a patient say, you're the first person who's ever listened. I mean, it, it makes a bigger contribution than whatever diagnosis mm -hmm. we end up coming up with and whatever treatment plan we end up prescribing. It's really that doctor-patient relationship that is making such a difference. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Well, is there anything we didn't ask you today that you wanted to speak about? I don't think so. You asked me so many things. <laughs> it was good. Where can everyone find you online? Um, you can follow me on Instagram, as I've mentioned like 12 times. It's dr.joshcorn. Uh, you can also visit my website, drjoshcorn.com. Check me out there. Yeah. All right. Great. And uh, you are accepting new patients probably at NUNM as well? I am. Yes. At NUNM, uh, I work in the Beaverton Health Center, so I'm accepting new patients there. Great. What days are you there? I'm there on Thursdays. Awesome. Yes. Cool. Well, people can definitely check you out there, find you online, and potentially connect with you in clinic. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. Yeah. Thank you so thank much you. For, for your time today, for giving us such thoughtful answers. And I really think that lots of students and young docs are going to get so much value out of everything. Great. So, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Practice Sessions. If you enjoyed the interview, please make sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. For show notes and more information, visit our website at www.thepracticesessionspodcast.com.